Thank you, Ray. We'll be taking a one-week sabbatical from the book of Isaiah this morning. But if you think back to last week, as Tom brought up uh, there in Isaiah 39, King Hezekiah and the prophecy that was given there to, to Hezekiah, and we saw just his extreme selfishness. Do you remember that? As Isaiah came to uh, Hezekiah, predicted the destruction of Jerusalem and their soon uh, deportation to Babylon. Nothing would be left, Isaiah told Hezekiah. Even his own sons, he said, would be carried off and made to be eunuchs there to serve the king in a foreign land. Remember Hezekiah's response? It's recorded there in Isaiah 39 and also in 2 Kings chapter 20. Here's what he said. The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not if there will be peace and security in my days? Quite a statement, really. But one that I see, I think we see his pronounced self-interest and really complete disregard for the future generation of God's people. Well, the passage that we'll be looking at this morning in Psalm 78 speaks to the significance of caring for the next generation of God's people. Turn, if you haven't, to Psalm 78. We'll be focusing on the first uh, eight verses or so in this chapter. But in many ways, Psalm 78 foreshadows the spirit of Hezekiah, a spirit that was shared by many of his forefathers, as we'll read about, as you can consider in this lengthy psalm by Asaph. We'll only consider a portion of that psalm this morning as it's the second longest uh, psalm in this book. But it's important for us, I think, just at the outset here to really highlight for a few minutes what is going on throughout the rest of the chapter so that we can better understand why Asaph records what he does here in his introduction. It's really a fascinating read. I know you've, you've read through Psalm 72 If you haven't, I I don't think you'd be disappointed to just take some time this afternoon to read through it. Lots of historical narrative in these 72 verses. And it's really a a high-definition description of the children of Israel. It's a high-definition portrait, therefore, of us apart from Christ. It captures who they were and who we are today. By simply telling a story, Asaph here highlights how we are wired as self-oriented people. We're going to see that here. We come ready-made with a gravitational pull inward towards self. And so when you consider Hezekiah's statement, it actually makes sense when we look at our own spiritual DNA. The entirety of the book, and and as you scan it and look at it, the entirety of the chapter is really a a back and forth of who God is and and what he's done for his people on the one hand, and then how his people responded by rebelling and testing and spurning against God on the other. Even if you just allow your eyes to scan over uh, this chapter, starting in verse 12, you, you can't miss the repetition of he, that is, God did this, and he did this, and he did this. Yet look at verse 17. Yet they sinned, they rebelled, they tested. But God did this, and he did this. 
And then verse 32, in spite of all this, they sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. Look at verse 36. They flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. However, verse 38, yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity. He did not destroy them. But he restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. Although he did stir up some. But this is the tenor of the entire chapter, spanning several generations in this story that he's about to tell, of spurning and forgetting God and therefore neglecting completely to care for the future generation of God's people, very similar to King Hezekiah. In fact, if you look down at 54 and 55, in describing the generation that finally made it into the promised land, we see in the book of Judges, Judges here, the the writer points to this generation and he says this in chapter 2. It tells us that there then arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. They'd just been led into the promised land, but a generation that did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. After all that he had done, they turned away from God and showed no concern that the next generation know this God. How, how did this happen? So God directs Asaph to pen this historical wisdom psalm against the backdrop of the faithlessness toward God and the neglect to pass on God's faithfulness to the coming generation. I think it's important that we at least recognize this pattern, that we see this posture of heart that we see described in the Israelites' life. Since these introductory verses here of this chapter that we're going to consider, they really serve as a warning, almost a, a direct attack against the narrative that he's going to write in the rest of the chapter. And so let's read the first eight verses. You can follow along in Psalm 78, 1 through 8. Asaph says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. It's interesting, just in reading these first eight verses, that each of the areas that Asaph exhorts them towards in this introduction, we see an exact opposite path or trajectory taken by the people of God as would be described throughout their history. And so in seeking to stem the neglect of God, 
in seeking to stem the neglect to care for the next generation, we see from this text that first of all, God and his greatness was to occupy their conversation. Secondly, that his word was given for that very reason. Really, a divine resource that was to point to him. And then finally, I think we'll see that the goal in all of this, the goal in this exhortation, was that God be honored. To begin, after calling their careful attention, you can see that in verse 1. Twice he says, or he exhorts them to give ear, to pay attention. What I'm about to say is crucial. And so Asaph then tells them, he's going he's to talk to them, he's going to communicate to them in a parable. He's going to tell them the story of Israel, uttering dark sayings of old. And he says there in verse 3, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Among the many who had forsaken the call to instruct the next generation of God, there were still some who had been faithful to do so. Their fathers had told them, as Asaph would personally attest to. And now, he charges his people somberly to do the same, to tell to the coming generation, God. He was to be their topic of conversation. Verse 4, we will not hide them, but tell to the coming generation. And this is what they were to tell Tell of the glorious deeds of the Lord. Tell of His might and the wonders that He has done. The focus here was not first for the children to do something. The focus was first for the tellers to behold something. Namely, God. To consider Him in some detail. To consider the wonder of God and to conclude that He truly is worthy of praise and glorious. Really, Asaph says here, in effect, direct the next generation to marvel at God and to see his works on their behalf. And be in awe. Ponder and then give voice to what he has done. Asaph stacks up these superlatives at the end of verse 4 to say that God is worth telling about. He's worth being esteemed and therefore should be talked about. So he says, tell of his glorious or praiseworthy deeds. Speak of his might or his power. Talk about his marvelous or marvel at his wonders. Discuss him. You know, he's going to go on in this chapter alone to list 50 things that God had accomplished for these specific generations. Things that God had personally done for them in protecting and feeding, miraculously watering and leading and satisfying them. And this just in these few generations. Asaph knows, and the rest of the Scripture attests, that there is no shortage of wonders to speak about when it comes to this God. I think we'd be well served as a church even to take some time this afternoon to reflect on the wonders of God. To consider what has been declared about Him in His Word, who He is, what He has done throughout the ages. 
as well. Consider for just a moment his gospel kindness. As those of us here who were hopeless, completely blinded, even to the reality of our own sin. In fact, described as enslaved. But now, because of God's mercy, rescued, set free, made alive to him. Consider personally how he sustained you. Sustained you in trial. How he's proven his goodness to you in spite of your failings. And even in seasons of silence, which some of you may be in, he is still good. He's still there. So Asaph says, tell of these glorious deeds. Tell of his might and of the wonders he has done. Start conversations with the coming generations about him. Is it rare for our children to catch us talking about God? Is it rare for them to to hear us talking about what Christ has done for us? Even as a church family this morning, is there a recognizable theme being advanced in our conversations? Maybe at the table or with one another through the years. What, what do we want to pass along as ultimate? I think that's the question we need to ask as we consider this. If we aren't persuaded as tellers that he is glorious, if we remain unaffected by these wonders, then Asaph is, is merely asking us to put on a good show, right? He's asking us to pretend for the coming generation. That's not the idea here. He's not asking us to tell the next generation something that, that we ourselves haven't really bought into. And so we pray, God, would you first work in me to truly see who you are? Would you help me to be rightly gladdened by what you have done for me, especially in Christ so that my telling is real? I think this truth is, is made very clear for us in Psalm 145 and verse 4. I just want you to listen to this from King David. Similar thought, but he says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. One generation shall commend. Commending is a way of telling, but it involves more than our spoken words. It's a boasting in or, or an endorsement of. It really starts to lean toward a demonstration with our lives of what truly is glorious. David says, commend the next generation to God. Not simply telling, but commending. I think for, for many of us this morning, the takeaway at this point might be less about adding more devotional times with our kids, although we need those. I think it might be more about refreshing ourselves first in God. To again be humbled, freshly aware of what he has drawn us from. And then to be able to joyfully say, this is who God is. And this, children, is what he has done. I 
commend him to you. According to this directive by Asaph, our love and our commitment to God must extend beyond just ourselves. We are to declare his goodness to the coming generation. Clearly, this is a call for parents. We've prayed about that. And in in particular, fathers here to take the lead in this. But by extension, as the family of God, as the church, what will the children of Christ's covenant church corporately hold dear 25 years from now because of what we've told them? Maybe even more importantly, what will they hold dear 25 years from now because of what we have shown them to be valuable, infinitely valuable? This future look, this this generational vision involves more than just those with children here this morning. For those who are older among us, maybe children long since uh, have left the house or perhaps no children at all, are are you taking the opportunity to speak God to the coming generation? Are you taking opportunity to encourage and to pray for those parents who are in the battle right now and may be very, very discouraged in this? There's a great role to play. For those of you who are younger singles or or college-age students, while you are a part of this next generation, there are those in the next generation who look to you whether you're invited or not, they, they look up to you. They want to hear from you. It's a unique platform that you have to influence for righteousness. What do they hear you talking about as important? As they listen in, and, and, and they do, what do they hear? Is it more about your, your career or, or the next purchase? About your social life? Asaph says, tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. Speak of his might. Tell of his wonders. You've heard Tom mention the quote, he may preach the gospel better than I can, but he cannot preach a better gospel. That that comes from a short account from the life of Charles Spurgeon. I want to just read uh, a paragraph here. Um, Charles talks about his grandfather often who was also a preacher. So let me just read here. He says, Spurgeon enjoyed telling the story of one day traveling to Haverhill, London to preach. Because of unforeseen circumstances, a rarity occurred, and Charles arrived late. So his grandfather, who attended the service, began the worship and preached on the text, By grace you are saved, from Ephesians 2, 8. Somewhat into the message, Charles Spurgeon Now the distinguished grandson entered the church. Here comes my grandson, James explained. He can preach the gospel better than I can, but you cannot preach a better gospel, can you, Charles? Still, pressing up the aisle, Charles replied, you you preached better than I, please go on. Grandfather James refused, but he told him his text and explained that he had shown the people that the source of salvation is grace. Charles took up from that point and preached the good news of Christ, all the while having his grandfather, his grandfather's whispered commendation. Good. That's good, Charles. 
until at certain points during the sermon, the old man exclaimed, Tell them that again, Charles. Tell them that again. And that is what we are to do. Tell them again and again about God. He is to be the topic of our conversations. Secondly, and and more briefly, his word was given for this very purpose. His word is our resource in displaying God. So if if you're following the the structure here, the progression, first, God was to occupy their conversations as they spoke to him. But second, his word was given as our guide in this telling. There's a connection between the telling of his deeds and the written word of God. You can see that especially as you, as you follow his train of thought, as you read through, especially down to verse 7, where the purpose statements are at. We'll, we'll see that in a minute. But verse 5, he says this, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. Of all the things that God does in this chapter, and there are many, if you take the time to read through, but the first, the very first thing that Asaph points out is that God, God established a testimony. He appointed a law in Israel. This testimony was about himself. This law was appointed to disclose parts of God's very nature. And so fathers, and by extension, mothers, are to teach these testimonies, he says. These precepts, that is, we are to take the time to unpack for them, to declare, to explain the words given by God. This was not a new concept for them. This is not a new concept for us. But its importance cannot be overstated as we see this repeated again and again by Moses, by the prophets, and even on into the New Testament. We're very familiar with the the famous passage in Deuteronomy. As Moses commanded, he said, teach these words. That is the law. Teach these words diligently to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Write them on the doorposts of your house. Write them on your gates. He's saying, do whatever it takes to emphasize these words because they're your life. Testimony and and the law, as we're told, were from the very finger of God and they were to be taught continually that they might know them, he says in verse 6. And in fact, think about this. In fact, to know them in a way that their grandchildren would feel the effect. You see that there. It's a staggering thought. As we seek to instruct our children, or as you seek to influence the next generation through this written word, which is a call for all of us, in the forefront of our minds is the worship of a generation not yet in existence. There was a deposit of truth that was to be guarded and treasured and taught to the coming generation. Unlike Hezekiah, We're to have a vested interest in the generational devotion to God and His glory by imparting His Word. 
a staggering thought, yes, but very much an overwhelming thought as we often falter in the teaching of this word. For some here this morning, perhaps this, this towel was tossed in long ago. And yet there is hope for us. A compassionate Savior remembers that we are but flesh, even here in this chapter, verse 39. He remembers that we are but flesh. And He does not treat us according to our lack. And yes, there is a call for us to repent. But there, hear that. There is room for us to repent. That is His grace to us. He says that a contrite heart He will not despise. In fact, He says, I will dwell with Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He breathes new life into those who recognize that they need new life. And that should be all of us. This is good news for us even as we fail. Consider as well that that while we are commanded to do these things, to teach and to tell, this is a serious call, but consider that, that even now we can give thanks that our standing before God does not depend on how well we are doing at this. That's true. The guilt that we regularly feel for failure has been fully absorbed by Christ and his death so that now our plotting efforts that stop and start we, we know that to be the case but our plotting efforts now flow from his mercy to us out of gratitude for what he has done on our behalf no condemnation for those who are in Christ none only grace, only his mercy. Before we move on here to the, the final point, I think we need to remind ourselves or, or be reminded briefly that, that teaching these truths does not guarantee reception of these truths. The teaching of these truths does not guarantee the reception of these truths. And the reception spoken of here requires much more than we could ever do. It's beyond our ability for these truths to have the desired effect if it's just up to us. God in his mercy, as Ray prayed, God in his mercy must initiate taking the hearing of these words to bring about faith and a changed life. We cannot do that. Clearly, as you, as you looked at this, look at this text, something supernatural is going on here in this progression that's described. The type of knowing described here that impacts generations involves more than, than being able to win at Bible trivia or claiming or, or even being able to defend a Christian worldview. That's not the knowing that, that is being discussed here. The knowing that leads to worship is supernatural. It happens only as God's Spirit uses His Word and then peels off the scales to truly see ourselves and to see Jesus as who He is. I think the gap between knowing about God, which many of us do, 
But the gap between knowing about God and knowing Him in this way, I think is really illustrated in a striking way throughout Psalm 78. The people about, listen, the people about to be described by Asaph in this psalm had not only been told about the wonders of God, they had seen them. Firsthand, they had witnessed the wonders of God. They were up close and personal to this Creator. And yet we're told, in spite of seeing the wonders of God again and again, verse 22 says, they did not believe in God. They did not trust His saving power. Verse 32, in spite of all this, he just lists all that God has done. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. And so Asaph describes them in the introduction as those who were a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. I think it's a good word for us, for those of us who, who have regular regret over how we have failed to tell and to teach in the ways that we are instructed here, in the ways that we even want to. Without a doubt, godly sorrow and repentance is appropriate and necessary and in fact called for. We also must remember the sovereign hand and purposes of a God who has to make these truths take root in our heart. Teaching these truths does not guarantee reception of these truths. And so, people of God, as we teach, as we tell, we must pray for an awakening of the soul within our children. One author puts it this way, we can do our best in putting God in the center and loving and praying and teaching But in the end, there is a chasm between teaching and knowing that only God can carry our children across. He must act. And we must pray. May He have mercy on us and our children as we teach this word. Faith comes by that word. And so in adhering here to the words of Asaph, first, God and His greatness must occupy our speech. Second, His Word was given to testify to that greatness. And finally, the ultimate goal in this progression, this transfer, was that God be honored. His glory was the end to which this process pointed. Verse 5, he says he established his words. Verse 6, that the next generation might know them and and tell them to the generation not yet born. And here's the goal of it all. Look at verse 7. So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Three phrases in that goal, all pointing to the one. As one author stated, that the aim of all true education is to deepen and broaden confidence in God. That hope would be anchored to the one that they had been hearing about for years. That faith would eventually settle upon the one their fathers had been in awe of and not afraid to voice to them. Even as their own faith wavered. The end goal described here for the next generation goes beyond 
obedient children. It goes beyond good behavior. Our sights for the coming generation must extend beyond their not missing a curfew or, or choosing the right friends to hang out with, even as, as important as those are. But if that's where we stop, we're missing it. Even in this chapter, there, there's a certain conformity that was described, an approach to God uh, through just external behavior. Verse 34, they even repented, we're told. And they sought God. In, but in verse 36, I, I think their true colors were exposed. Yet they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward God. And God was not fooled. God is not impressed or fooled with, with, with our iron shirts, right? He desires so much more for us. And this divine word calls for a settled and a steady trust in the divine. In Asaph's vision that he lays out, even, even here in this introduction, the fathers were to be intent. Brokenly so, but intent on pointing sons and daughters to God. Directing them to see from, from their talk and from their, their faltering walk that there is one worth living for. And so, as the people of God, the, the educational mission was for the coming generation to recognize and honor God for who he was. Because in doing so, they would set their hope in him. I think it's right for us to to assess, to ponder in our own hearts, to ask, what are we aiming for as we raise up the next generation? What goals for our children's future, have we helped them shape, perhaps even unknowingly? In asking and answering these questions, it doesn't mean that we, we should not or, or can't desire for our children to succeed in education or financially or socially. We should. All these are, are appropriate and right considerations. We shouldn't ignore them. But if those alone rise to the top, We are missing it. We're falling short. If hope in God registers only as a bonus, we need to heed this call for our sake, yes, but for the sake of of the next generation. A blog post was sent to me uh, a couple of days ago entitled, How to Raise a Pagan Kid in a Christian Home. You may have seen it referenced, but in this post, the, the creator of VeggieTales, Phil Vischer, was interviewed. You, you may have seen it in World Magazine as well. But he said this in an interview. He said, I looked back at the previous 10 years and realized I had spent 10 years trying to convince kids to behave Christianly without teaching them actual Christianity. And that was a pretty serious conviction, he continues. You can say, hey, kids, be more forgiving because the Bible says so. Or, hey, kids, be more kind because the Bible says so. But that isn't Christianity. It's morality. It's the American Christian ideal. 
he goes on to say, we're drinking a mix of the Protestant work ethic, the American dream, and the gospel, and they're indistinguishable. Our gospel has become a gospel of following your dreams and being good so that God will make all your dreams come true. And this is it, right? What are we lifting up to our kids as worth going after? Maybe even more accurately, who are we lifting up to our kids as pursuing with their entire beings? The ultimate aim of our telling and our teaching is nothing less than the worship of God. Not for ourselves to be lifted up. It's for His glory. And we need His grace if this is to happen. And so in this passage, in light of Israel's history, in light of our own history that we know well, may God occupy our conversations. May His established word be our guide as we point them to Him. And finally, may our aim be His glory as we gladly commend God to the coming generation. Take a few moments just to to pray as we do each week, just in responding to the word and and as is encouraged, we pray that we ask that you pray loudly for all of us to hear and briefly and corporately as we go to him. I'll begin.